You are listening to a sermon from the Way of Jesus series at Doxa Church in Bellevue, Washington. In this series, we are exploring the way of life that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Join us Sundays in Bellevue at 9 and 11 a.m. or online at www.doxa-church.com. Good morning, everyone. Please remain standing. Turn to your neighbor on either side and say, may the peace of Christ be with you. Great job. Now for the reading of God's word from Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You've heard, heard it been said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, you should throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your body go into hell. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeff. It's good to be with you. I have a really light topic to talk about this week. (laughs) Everyone's nervous. Some people looked ahead and decided not to come today because I knew what I was going to teach on. Um, For those of you who braved it and made it, thanks for being here. Uh, If you're new, one of the reasons why we, there was like cheering for Matt is because he memorized that whole text. So whoever shares each week has memorized the passage that we're going to be preaching from, which is pretty cool. So I want to pray to begin because I think we need God to speak and to work in our hearts. Why don't we do that? Father, as we come to you and we open your word, we ask that you would help us to hear what Jesus intends for us to hear today. That the spirit that you sent to be with us, would convict our hearts, would reveal truth, would show us the way we are to walk in response to what you say. We want to be a people who really believe you know what is best and that we're willing to submit to what you say. So help us to do that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week and this week's topic flows from Jesus' words that kicked off this second part of our Sermon on the Mount series, where he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I made it clear that week that entering the kingdom of heaven isn't just a future thing that happens when we die, but it's a present experience of living under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ today that will last forever. And this idea that Life was meant to be a particular way that God wants us to flourish. And the best way to flourish is to live under the rule and reign of Jesus and then to walk in the way that Jesus describes. Last week and this week and the coming weeks, we're going to hear Jesus give us illustrative kind of ideas of what this flourishing life looks like. It's a life that's a whole-hearted life, meaning that what goes on on the outside reflects what's going on on the inside, and vice versa, that we're not saying one thing here and doing another thing here, that we're not trying to obey a set of rules or guidelines, but inside of our heart, we are really still very broken. Uh, what, what Jesus wants for us is to live a life that's whole-hearted, 
a changed heart that produces a changed life. In fact, I would just want to say this, if you're not yet a Christian, you haven't yet come to believe what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, I want to let you know that Christianity is not just another set of rules or guidelines as though it's just next to any other religion with just different guidelines. It's not that. Christianity at the heart is a belief that God doesn't ask you to change yourself or fix yourself or measure up to him, but rather he comes in the person and work of Jesus to live the life you couldn't live to die for you and forgive your sins and to then send his spirit to give you a new heart with new desires to live a new life. It's, a, it's an inside out kind of life that God gives us, that he wants to come and change you from the inside out. And so it's not an empty, powerless religion. It's God coming to save and change and move in people so that they have an entirely different life that's empowered by him, not them. Amen? Those of you who are a part of this, you should know that, but if this is new to you, I want to make sure you understand, we're not just trying to say, what are the rules, how do we live by them? Though Jesus is going to give us commands here, he's going to go from the external observance of a command to the internal heart of why we do what we do. Verse 27, he says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And I don't want to assume that anybody knows what adultery is in the culture we live in. So I want to make sure I I define it. Adultery adultery is engaging in any sexual activity with someone who is not your spouse. Married or not, when you have sex with someone you haven't entered into covenant marriage with, you are committing adultery, okay? Now, why is this wrong? It's interesting, Dallas Willard, I was reading his uh, Divine Conspiracy to just kind of do some of my prep for this week. I recommend the book if you haven't read it. He says, one of the most telling things about contemporary human beings is that they cannot find a reason for not committing adultery. They cannot find a reason for not, for not committing adultery. There's, it's almost like, why, would, why wouldn't you just give yourself in to your sexual desires and urges? Why wouldn't you be driven by your passions? Why wouldn't you do what most satisfies you, especially if there's two consenting adults who agree to do it? Then what, what's wrong with that? Well, what is wrong with it? Well, our lives, as we've talked about many times here as a church, our lives are meant to display the truth of what God is like and to tell the truth of what God has done. We've been made as image bearers of God, given relationship intentionally by God to describe the very nature of God and the activity of God. Another way that I like to say this here, if you've been with us for a while, this won't be new. We have been created to show God's glory and tell God's story. We've been created to show the truth of what he's like and to interact in such a way that we tell the truth about what he's done. See, the idea of God's story is it's a biblical narrative of a love story. If you know the Bible, you know it begins with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. And the reason why it's built this way is because God is trying to say to all of humanity, I love you and I'm pursuing you like a faithful bridegroom pursues his bride. And even though my bride has been unfaithful to me, I will continue to be faithful to her, God says. His bride in the scriptures is Israel and then the church 
church as we get grafted in to the family of God through the work of Jesus Christ. And the entire narrative of the Bible is God saying all of humanity and all of the story I have written is really one big love story of me, someone who is holy other, giving himself to you, a people who I will make holy and faithful because you're not. I will be faithful no matter what you do because this is what love looks like in covenant. So why is adultery bad? Because it's telling a lie about God. It's saying we, though we know what God's like, will live in a way that tells a lie about what God's like. In our unfaithfulness to one another, we are saying God is unfaithful. In our story of broken marriages or, or perversion or brokenness in our sexuality, we are saying the story of God is about an unfaithful bridegroom, not a faithful bridegroom. We're, we're telling a lie. You and I were given the dignity by God to be image bearers, to tell his story and show his glory. And so we got to keep asking ourselves, how were we made to do that? And marriage given to a man and a woman to enjoy covenant, intimate, sexual union for the, as long as they will live is God's intent of saying, look at what I'm like. I am God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, not divided, fully committed, faithful to one another, and I am pursuing humanity as a way of showing you what love looks like that's faithful and holds to a covenant. Anytime we engage in any kind of adulterous behavior, we are actually saying God is not like that and God has not done that. That makes sense? Do you understand the reason why? In fact, I want to encourage you, as you answer people's questions about why we believe what we believe about sex and about sexuality and about marriage, please don't just answer the Bible says so. Tell them the story. God wants us to display his faithful covenant love that never ends and stays with you even though you walk away from him. That's the story we're telling. And the people who heard Jesus say, thou shalt not commit adultery, were very familiar with that. In fact, they probably were sitting there listening to it going, yep, we know that we're not supposed to do this. And likely they were saying in their hearts, we're being faithful to that. We're keeping it. We're obeying it. Because outwardly, many of them likely were. But Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. To be applied, by the way, to both men and women, to be clear. Lustful intent is another way of saying looking with a desire to desire what is not yours to desire. Okay, I want to say that again. It's on the screen so you can see it. Lustful intent is looking with a desire to desire what is not yours to desire. Okay, well, it's another way of saying like, I wish that that were mine. I, I, I had, a, had a mentor of mine many years ago say there's a, the, the, the thing about lust is that it's not looking at a man or a woman and saying, wow, they're nice. It's saying, wow, they would be nice. It's moving from an expression of acknowledgement of what God has done and creating them in his image to be a display of his creativity and beauty to moving to a place of taking ownership over them as though they exist for your personal pleasure. That, that's when it moves from 
being able to have a desire that's a God-given desire to a lustful desire that is seeking to desire something that was never meant to satisfy your desire in the way you want it to. So you follow me? So to be clear, desire in itself is not evil. You were created by God to desire. Desire food, really good food. Desire drink. Go to Woodenville, enjoy. <laughs> to, to desire relationship, friendship, intimacy, to desire even the right use of power for the good of humanity. I mean, you were given desires by God and you were given sexual desire from God. Just to be clear, sex is God's idea. He created it. He made it. It's not the world's. It's God's. He gave it to you. And so, want to be clear, everyone who looks at a woman or a man and experiences desire has not committed adultery with him or her. It's not wrong to have desire. It's wrong to look with the intent to have an ungodly desire for somebody who is not yours. Because here's what I don't want to do. I want you to walk out here today going like, okay, I can't even look at a man or a woman because at any moment I just go like, wow, they're, they're pretty or they, you know, like something's welling up inside of me. I'm telling you, we're going to have to all go live as hermits, right? You were given God-given desires and, and those get stirred up and it's not sin to have a desire, but it is sin to look with the intent to desire somebody for yourself in a way God never intended, so we've got to distinguish that. In fact, Jesus walked around and he wasn't going like, I can't look at women. He, he had sexual desires. Let's be clear. He was just like us. Hebrews says he was tempted in every way just like us, but he did not sin. So it's, it, I don't want you to walk out here going like, oh, because I was tempted, I sinned. No, you're a human in a broken world living with a lot of things around you that you've got to pay attention to and go, what's happening inside of me as I see that? What's stirring up in me that I didn't pay attention to? When I look at someone who is maybe sexually or relationally appealing and I experience a desire, do I move to wanting them to be mine and beginning to imagine myself with them? That's what Jesus is talking about. That's when we begin to experience a heart adultery. Now, it's important that we stop and we bring another commandment that Jesus is not overtly saying, but there's certainly an implication or an inference to this command in Exodus 20, verse 17, which is the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, which I'll come back to in just a bit because that's a personal struggle of mine right now. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. To be clear, to covet something is to want what is another's to be yours. It's, it's to be discontent with what I have, and then in response wish that I had something else. Particularly, something else that belongs to somebody else. That, that, that's at the heart of Jesus' concern is discontentment because at the heart of lust is discontentment. See, to lust is to seek to satisfy a good desire with something or someone God has not yet given you or will not allow you to have. 
The Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Colossae as well as his letter to the church in Ephesus regularly connected sexual immorality and covetousness in the same sentence because he knew that sexual immorality was an expression of a lack of contentedness with what God's given. It was, it was a form of coveting at the heart of all sexual morality, immorality, it's a desiring for something that God has not given you or wants you to have. This is what happened in the Garden of Eden. If you know the story, Adam and Eve, God gives them beautiful garden, all the trees and the fruit are given to them to satisfy their, their desires. He's given them an opportunity to express their authority and power over all of creation, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, to have little image bearers that are brought up underneath them that they can help grow up as also image bearers who tell the story of God in their life. And, and what happens? The evil one comes along and says, God knows that there's something that you don't yet have. And if you were to eat of this tree that he told you not to eat of, you'll get what you really want. And so in Genesis 3, 6, it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. That's another way of saying she engaged with intentful lust, looking to a source to satisfy a longing that God had already given her the provision of in something else. So she took of it, she ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate as well. And we know what happened as a result, which always happens as a result of giving in to our lustful desires. It led to destruction. It led to brokenness in the relationship. It led to catastrophic, creational level pain that we're still dealing with today. And every one of us is born broken with broken desires, good desires from God that have been perverted and distorted by sin that God wants to transform so that the good desire he gave us is satisfied in the means by which he provides. That's what he's doing with all of us. He knows that he made us with deep, deep desires and he knows that he can provide them with the things that are best for satisfying them and he wants us to trust him with his provision and yet every day you and I are surrounded by a culture that says you can't trust him He's holding back. Every commercial, it seems, these days is saying, you don't have enough. You aren't enough. You could have. You could be. If you just buy this shirt, this shoe, this car, whatever. Are you with me? Maybe you've been paying attention what, what you're being told every single day. I mean, now, now if you're on your phone, which you probably are most of the time, because we all know it, you are literally, I mean, there are, you know how you used to hate advertisements? Like you, what you find that you all got, you paid for the, 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 the Hulu advanced or bonus, whatever, so you don't have to get the, the advertisements anymore. They're on your phone constantly. And they're constantly telling you through Facebook, through Instagram, through Twitter, you don't have enough, you aren't enough, but I can tell you how you could be. And you're being trained all day long to lust. And I'm not talking about just sexual lust. I'm talking about a, a world that keeps telling you, don't be content. You don't have what you need. You aren't what you could be. Don't believe God that he's given you what he wants for you today. It's all around us. Sowing seeds of discontent every day. 
Just stop and think about what you're being told and what you're believing and what you're desiring. Some of you are, are single here today in the room, and you're like, Jeff, I want a husband. I want a wife. That's a good thing. I want to be clear. God gave you a desire for this. It's a very good thing. And some of you are going, so why isn't he satisfying my good desires with a good thing? My answer is, I don't know. But let me ask you, in your longing for a good thing, are you shortchanging God's process and plan? Are you saying, okay, I'm just going to find somebody and act like we're married for a while. I'm not going to wait for a marriage covenant. We're going to live together. I'm not going to wait for a marriage covenant. We're going to sleep together. I'm going to pretend and play house like we're married. And when I tell you, God did not intend for you to experience the joy of intimacy without a covenant. Without someone saying, I will stay with you no matter what. Because here's what we all know. When you get to know somebody well enough, you realize they're not as attractive as you thought they were when you first met them. Anybody married here that can agree to that? Okay. My wife regularly reminds me that I conjure into this thing. But we're still married for 25 years. Why? Because we entered into a covenant where we can experience love that moves beyond infatuation and sexual desire to a deep level of intimacy and the mingling of our souls together into one flesh. It's beautiful. But you don't get that if you play house. You don't get that if you just mess around with covenant and you act, act like you're covenanted together, but you aren't. I know that some of you in the room are going, Jeff, you are so old-fashioned. Yeah, I want to hold to this as God's way of doing things right. There are days when I wish arranged marriage would come back, right? Because some of you are going like, amen. Some of these guys in Seattle need to get a kick in the pants to actually pursue somebody. And you know why? If I could speak directly to some of you men, you've been told by the world that there's not a woman that will ever measure up to how great you are. You're not that great. <laughs> Okay, let's be clear. You're not as awesome as you think. But you've been told through images of women that have been photoshopped that there's a woman out there that doesn't have a flaw physically. You've been told that there's a woman who can stand up and accomplish everything while still looking amazing, holding a baby on her hip and working a job and looking like there's nothing wrong with her and she'll never get old. Am I, am I right? The culture is telling you, wait for Wonder Woman. She doesn't exist. She's a comic book character. Do we understand that? And, and women, the same thing. There is not a perfect man out there other than Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, some of you have got to just go, go, God, will you just, will you arrange my marriage then? Will you tell me who I'm supposed to marry? And I will be okay with them being imperfect. And those of us who are married will say, we wake up every day to a different person. I've been married for 25 years. I woke up to a different woman yesterday morning and I love her like crazy, but she's changing every day and she's probably going to tell you, yeah, and it's a miracle that I stayed with this guy. <laughs> it's God's grace. We've learned this is what love is. Why? Because we're telling the story of God who is perfect in love being faithful to a group of people that aren't perfect. It's what our marriage is telling. So, some of you who are married, to be honest, let's be direct, some of you are, want a different marriage. And I know, it's hard. Let me encourage you, don't go to, don't go to romance novels. Please don't read Nicholas Spark as, as your way of figuring out what romance should look like. 
Nicholas Sparks is like the already kingdom reality that we talk about when we talk about what it'll be like when it's a new heaven and a new earth. And some of you read Nicholas Sparks, like, oh, I wish it was like this. I want to, I'm going to go, it's not going to be like that ever until Jesus returns because Jesus is the only real guy in that story. Okay? Like, just please don't fantasize about what your marriage could be. Live with what God's given you and then ask him to have, you have a hunger that's holy for you together to become more like Christ. But be satisfied in the moment as well as you struggle toward what could be. Don't, don't fantasize about how your neighbor's life, marriage is better. It's not. Don't fantasize about yourself being with someone else. And some of you have an insatiable desire to feed this, this false sexual intimacy so you go to pornography and you just look after a cheap perverted way of satisfying a sexual indulgence and I want to tell you you are cheapening what God has given and you are dehumanizing others as a result and it's destroying you it's destroying you because whenever we we want somebody to be for us what God never meant them to be we make them an object for our own personal satisfaction. See, love says, I want to give myself for you. Lust says, I want to take and get from you what I'm lacking because I didn't get it from him. I didn't get it from God. Lust is when any God-given desire is sought to be satisfied in a non-God-given way. Say that again. Lust is when any God-given desire is sought to be satisfied in a non-God-given way. And this doesn't just apply to sex. Please hear me. In fact, lust in the Bible, in the Old Testament, only two times in the entire Old Testament does love re- lust refer to sexuality. One of them, you, some of you know, is when Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look at a woman lustfully. The other is in the Proverbs, when the father's speaking to his son about avoiding the immoral woman. The rest of the times lust is used, you know what it's used for? God's people looking over the fence into the nation's backyard and saying, it would be much better to be under their gods. It would be much better to live with their reality. And God uses the word lust almost all the way through the Old Testament to show how his people have adulterous hearts as they engage in idolatry and want to worship another God because they think their God has let them down. Their God is not satisfied. And by the way, let me just be clear, all of us do this. We all look into the backyard of what it would be like if we could have it our way. And in so doing, we engage in a form of worship that says, God, you can't be trusted. Your provision is not sufficient, so I'm gonna do it my own way. We all do this. We do it with lots of things. Some of us look at someone else's job and go, I wish I had that job. And we begin to fantasize what we could do to maybe undermine someone else's career so we could take over theirs. Some of us do this with each other's kids. I wish my kids were that obedient. You haven't seen them at home. I love my kids. They're awesome. We do this with all kinds of things. Lately, Janie and I have been looking, we've been looking for a house to buy on the east side. And I don't know if you know this, but they're kind of expensive. <laughs> and coming from Tacoma, it's like one home in Tacoma is, it's like a third of the price of a home on the east side. So, you know, we've been looking around and we have some money and savings and we might have to sell our rental homes to be able to buy a home here. And 
been looking around and we haven't sold them yet, but I'm kind of imagining what if we did and how much would we have? And so we're looking at homes, what we think are in our price range. And, and sure enough, you know, you do those open houses on Fridays or Saturdays. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And you so let's just stop in this house. And of course, you walk up and you read the thing. It says, oh, 2.1 million. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't stop in that house. And there's that little part of you goes, but I'd like to see what it's like. And then you walk in and your kids are like, this is amazing. <laughs> And your wife goes, I would love a kitchen like this. And, and the whole time you're going, yeah, me too. And then you start to imagine, what would it take? You know, maybe we could get more jobs. Maybe we could do double income, maybe triple, four times income. And we can't do no kids. We got that. So, you know, and all of a sudden you start, what do you do? You start living in this lust for what is not yours. Am I, anybody with me on this? I'm not alone, am I? I mean, and then you, you begin to imagine a life that God hasn't given you and you, you, you begin to feed the discontent. And what happens? You wonder, God, do you care about us? Are you taking care of us? Are you providing for us? How come they can have that and I can't? Now, I want to be clear. Every time we engage in that kind of behavior in any area of our life, we are training ourselves in discontentedness, which lead to, leads to covetousness, which in our marriages or relationships leads to lustful intent. Because then we want people to be for us what God never intended them to be. And we're not satisfied with who he gave us. Just think about how this impacts our relationships with one another in a missional community. You know, some of you who are learning how to do life together and learn how to love one another and care for each other and serve each other and hopefully share the truths of Jesus with other people who don't yet know how much he loves them. Just think about how this erodes how we perceive one another. Because when I start to satisfy myself or seek to satisfy myself in inappropriate ways, viewing men and women as existing for the means of my satisfaction instead of a way to serve them and love them, then what happens to everybody in the group? They start to become somebody who gets in the way of my life or serves the agenda of my life. And then we tell the world, we're no different. We love because we get from it, not because he gave so we could give our lives to one another. We're presently seeing the effects of this in the, the Me Too era, aren't we? I mean, no one should be surprised that there's so many people in Hollywood who've been sexually abused and taken advantage of when the majority of what we're doing is trying to objectify women sexually through film and TV, okay? And I, I have, I'm deeply grieved by what's happened to these women. I am. And yet I look at what we do and I'm not surprised that it's been so easy for men to do this to the women in their realm of work. I was interacting with an older businessman recently. He said more and more young businessmen that he meets with are trying to avoid being accused of sexual harassment. They're, they're really scared like at any point they could be accused. And he said, well, here, I got a secret for you. Love women like Jesus did and you won't be accused of it. By the way, if you're new to, to Christianity, Jesus is the best man there ever was, the safest one to ever be with, the one who honored and, and lifted up women like no one ever has, gave dignity to them as image bearers of God in remarkable ways. Some of you watched, did anybody watch the Oscars? 
You see Frances McDermott get up and give her speech? Some of you don't know. She got up and gave a big speech about receiving the award, but put the award down at one point and said, I got something to say. And she, she had all the women who had been nominated in any category stand up. And she, she then honored them for their work and then said, hey, I want everyone in Hollywood to call, like, we're here. We're here to do work. And she uses the word inclusion as a kind of a tag word to an agenda that's happening right now in Hollywood. And the whole time I'm sitting there listening going, okay, so it used to be in Hollywood that they were valued for their sexuality. And she's saying, please, don't treat us like that. Instead, value us for what we can produce with our abilities. And I'm sitting there thinking, you just traded one form of lust for another. And then I'm also thinking, well, what about all the women in the house that weren't invited to stand up because they weren't nominated or they were a spouse to somebody who was? It's like, why not have all the women stand up? Because this is what I think Jesus would have done. He would have said, you know what? You've been abused. You've been harassed because people don't know how to honor you in the way you were meant to honor you. Would all the women stand up in the house? And Jesus would have said, I created you in the image of God. Your dignity is not in what you do or how you satisfy somebody else with your work. Your dignity is the fact that you were made by God to display what God is like as a woman in this world. You should be proud that I would call you my sisters and our father would call you his daughters. Stand up as a woman because you're a woman, not because what you can do for a man. Amen? Amen. All the women are going, yes. All the men are going, oh, well, you need to hear this message then. So what do we do about this? Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body going into hell. So we have some mutilation stations that you're gonna get to go to at the end of the service. All the people who are guests got really nervous. No, no. Is Jesus saying just rip off your body parts? No. He's speaking in hyperbole. In fact, uh, Origen, who was a church father, actually took him very seriously and castrated himself to deal with his sexual desires, which didn't change anything for him. And the Council of Nicaea in 325 gathered together to say, we've got to forbid that kind of practice. That's not what Jesus had in mind. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is saying, I want you to understand how destructive this kind of living is to other people. And so I'm gonna speak in very, very strong words about how serious this is when we dishonor one another by objectifying one another for our own selfish gratification. So he wants us to take it seriously. Second, he's getting after causation. He's saying, what is the cause of your lust? So he says, if your eye causes you, then gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, what is he saying? He's going, okay, the reality is, if you took out your eye, then you'd be feeling your way around the world and you'd still struggle. It wouldn't just end. You'd have to keep going until you kill yourself. Which is interesting because later on Jesus says whoever would follow me must deny himself, take up his cross daily 
If you want to seek to save your life, you must lose it for my sake. But whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Jesus gives those kinds of phrases. So what is he saying? He's saying the if problem isn't your eye. The if problem isn't your hand. Later on, we find out Jesus says the if problem is your heart. It's what's going on inside of you. In fact, he says it this way in Matthew 6, 22. The, lamp, the eye is the lamp of the body. If the eye is dark, how great is the darkness? He's talking about inside of us. If the eye is full of light, how great is the light? And Jesus talks about the idea, it's not what goes into a man that corrupts him, but what comes out of a man that corrupts him. What is he saying? He's saying, pay attention to why your eye does what it does. It's the lamp of the body, not just it's taking in, it's revealing what's already in. Okay? What you want to look at and why you want to look at it is an indicator of what's going on inside of you. It's revealing your desires. So the first question we should ask is, what am I desiring? And what is the desire under the desire? What's the desire under the desire? I was exposed to pornography at a very early age in my life. Unfortunately, it taught me how to look at women in very inappropriate ways. In my later 20s, God was very, God was very kind to me and provided me with a few different counselors who helped me walk through. I was a youth pastor, but I still struggled. It wasn't an addiction, but it was a struggle. And one of the questions that one of them asked me was, Jeff, what is it that you're desiring when you go to these things? No one had ever asked me that question. They just said, stop looking at it. And I, I, I had never really thought about that until I thought through the fact that when I would look at pornography, I would just click from one image to another to an image, another image and hardly even look at it. And I realized it was, it was adventurous. It was curiosity. It was an exploration for me. Ungodly as it was, it was connected to a good desire that God gave me, and that is God has made me to be a man who seeks adventure, who wants to do pioneering work. And I remember this counselor saying, what if you were to take that God-given desire instead of trying to satisfy it in a way that he never intended, you were to satisfy it in the way he designed you to, to fulfill it? What if you're called to, to plant churches? What if you're called to lead ministries? What if you're called to pursue your wife with that kind of adventure or your children that, that we didn't have at that moment, but that maybe you'll, God will give give you, I look back and realize nine years of waiting for kids, God might have just been going, you are not ready for it, so I'm not going to give it to you yet. And, and it became for me a moment where I was like, I've never paid attention to the deep longings of my heart that God gave me, and therefore I was satisfying them in ways that God didn't want. By the way, the reason why I'm leading this church is because I have an adventurous heart. Who would step into this? <laughs> right? I'm not kidding. And so, yeah, so God's like, you know, I made you this way because I had work for you to do. And if you will satisfy yourself with that longing and the provision I give you, then you will find that your longings are met with me and my purposes instead of some counterfeit that's never going to satisfy. That's the first thing. What's the desire under the desire? I want you to ask that question. What's the desire under the desire in your heart? It's not unusual that I'll have time after a gathering like this to pray with men who will be honest with me about their struggle with pornography. And as I ask them, why do you go there? That's, sometimes it's a surprise I've never even thought about. 
And some of them have said it's because I feel, I feel out of control. It gives me a sense of control. I, I, I don't feel noticed. This feels like, of course, they're not noticing you because they can't see you, right? But it's all counterfeit. I, I want intimacy. I want to be close. I know, but this will never give it to you. And it's always a good desire misdirected to the wrong thing. Second question, how does God then want me to satisfy my desire? What's the desire under the desire and what does he want me to satisfy it with? He has a good gift in store. God doesn't give you deep desires and then leave you hungry. He wants to satisfy your desires with good things, not always in the way you think and not always in the timing that you want. I want to come back to those of you who are single here looking for a spouse. You might, might be asking, why God? Why not now? And I don't know. I said that earlier. But it's possible that God's saying, I want you to long for intimacy and, and friendship, but I want you to find it with me first. I want you to learn how to commune with me in ways that will actually serve your future spouse as you learn to serve them with an intimate, full of love relationship that you have with me. That may be it. It may also be, he's going, I want you to learn how to have friendships that don't always have a, a return. Or I'm wanting you to, to steward your singleness in a way that you'll look back on and see that I used a period of, your time, of life for you to really impact the kingdom of God and the world in powerful ways. I don't know. I don't want to diminish how hard it is because I've got, own, I got my own stuff that I struggle with and sometimes I wish God would hurry up and fix. But I also have to believe that he's got me where he wants me and he's giving me what I need and I've got to learn how to be content, which is the third thing. Give God thanks for what he's already given you. What, what is Israel's biggest problem? While they're wandering through the wilderness, they've got God in their midst and they're not satisfied. If you're not satisfied with God, nothing will satisfy you. Because he is the giver and sustainer of all good things. He is the sustainer of life. All good things come from him. If you got him, you got everything. But Israel was not satisfied. They kept looking forward until they get to the promised land and everything will be good. We're in the wilderness. It's terrible here. Maybe we should go back to Egypt. They're pining for what was. They're looking forward to what could be and they're missing him in their midst. Please don't miss God in your midst because your, satis your lack of satisfaction with him leads you to go somewhere else and you miss the very good gifts he wants to give you today. Give him thanks. You know the secret to destroying lust? Being content in what God has presently given you. Thanksgiving is like kryptonite to lust and covetousness. Thanksgiving is a way to say, no, I will learn to give thanks for all that God has given. Someone after the first gathering came to me and said, their mom, when their kid, her kids were complaining, the mom would say, okay, for the next week, all we're gonna do is do prayers of thanksgiving. We're not gonna do prayers of supplication because you keep saying you want more instead of saying, thank God for what you've given. And she said, they, they, my mom taught us to thank God for the pillowcase, for the bathroom that's actually inside the house, for water that's running, and on, and just walk through. Let's give thanks for all these good gifts. Because parents, I want to tell you, if you want to train up your kids in the way they should go, teach them to give thanks for what they already have instead of looking at their friends and wishing they had what they had. You want to train them how not to lust one day? Teach them how to be content today. You want to train them how to be satisfied with their future spouse? Teach them how to say thanks, give thanksgiving for what God's given today in this moment. That's why the writer of Proverbs in verse 18 of chapter five says this to those who are married, rejoice in the wife of your youth. What is he saying? There was a day when you couldn't believe you got her. 
ladies, the same way to the men. Don't forget that day. Keep remembering you don't deserve her. And if I could end here, I'd say, until you find your greatest satisfaction in God and his gifts, you will always, always, always be hungry. Because he designed you to find your deepest hunger most fully met in himself. Jesus came to this earth to be the faithful bridegroom to pursue his bride, the church, us. Jesus, every single day of his life, found his greatest satisfaction in God the Father's affection and affirmation of him. See, if Jesus would have come needing us to accept him, he would have never been able to give his life in pure love for us. But instead, he came and he said, all I have, I have from the Father. I know the Father's love. I know the Father's affection. I know that he is what I need. And therefore, Jesus didn't have to lust. He could love. He didn't have to love us so he could get something. He loved us by giving us his very life. And Jesus went to the cross to forgive idolaters, adulterers, covetors, and people who struggle with lust. And on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. A lot of you in the room don't even, didn't even know, even, maybe even until today, why you were doing what you were doing. And Jesus said, before you even knew it, forgive them. They don't know. That's grace. That's great grace. And then he rose again, and this is very important, on the third day, to send his spirit into our hearts so we could have new hearts that actually want to do what he wants and can do it. Today, my hope is that that would happen to you. You would go, I'm done. I don't want to keep giving in to destructive behaviors. I don't want to objectify men or women. I want to love like God has loved me in Christ. So I'm gonna give you a moment just where you're at to be quiet. I want you to bow your heads if you would and just ask God, what is it I've been desiring and why? And how do you want me to look to you to satisfy that desire? Just take a moment. What I've been desiring and why? And how are you wanting me to look to you to satisfy that desire? now take a moment just to give him thanks for all the good gifts he's already given you. Ask him to help you to be content through your thanksgiving.
Father, we can read the story of Israel and wonder how in the world, after all they saw you do, they could still be grumbling and complaining. They could still be looking at another nation and wish they had what they had. And yet we're not any different. You've given us your son. Jesus, you willingly laid down your life out of love for the Father and love for us. And yet regularly we go elsewhere. And so we're no different. And that you promise that though we fall short, you love us still. You are the only faithful friend. You are the only faithful spouse. God, you are the only faithful parent. And so we come to you again and acknowledge our need for you to satisfy our deepest longings, for for you to point out all you've done already so that our hearts would move away from coveting and lust towards thanksgiving and contentment. Do a work in us, Lord. We need you. Without you, we will continue to walk in ways that are destructive to ourselves and others. Change our hearts. Work in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.